0: Right. Like the important thing isn't to predict what is going to happen. It's to like do the thing that everybody else is doing, because then if bad things happen, you say, well, like it wasn't my fault. Everybody else was buying nickel from Russia. It's a
1: structural force at that point. Mm. People were nickel crazy. I'd have been mad not to. (laughs) What a big nickel cube.
2: Yeah. Well, well, as we get into nickel coin and wheat coin and the other different uh, cryptocurrencies in the form of physical goods uh, that are mooning. Uh, I want to talk about the um, uh, one other couple of the sanctions, right? In addition to, as you say, like the sanctions on the defense industry. There are sanctions on individuals. Um, so like, this is, again, this like, is horrible, by the way. If you're an yeah. American who wants to shoot bottles and cans off a fence, but you want to run a Russian, uh, a Russian origin or Soviet origin weapon to do it. Mm-hmm. Hor- horrible uh, time to shoot seven point six two, or so I'm told. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but then we talk about you know companies self-sanctionings so like Visa and Mastercard pulling out. Um but also like and again this is something I'll, I'll I'll ask Milo about right as well. Like this is something that's super important to middle-class Russians. Like IKEA specifically was really really important to this concept of like an emerging Russian middle class in Moscow, right?
1: Yeah, I mean like uh the Russian middle class are much like the middle class anywhere in that they like they like to have their treats and um I would say that, like, I don't know, I'm not going to, like... There, I think a lot of people in the West would probably like to think that there's, like, the, uh, like a gigantic anti-Putin constituency in Russia when I think that the truth is that in Russia, like, a, a huge proportion of people are, like, quite apolitical. Mm. Like, your kind of proportion of, like, die-hard Putin supporters isn't that big, but also your proportion of, like, die-hard Putin opposition isn't that big either. And, like, most of it is kind of people who are just, like... uh I I would like my life to be good. Um, (laughs) And so like, they kind of like, I think the Russians are so used to uh, the idea that like Russia sucks and it's always sucked and it will continue to suck. And like, if you want your life to not suck, you should probably leave. (laughs) Uh, So there's this kind of weird, I don't know, like, like on the one hand, like, yeah, that kind of like, I mean, when I was living in Moscow, it kind of felt. It was almost like you could almost think you're in the West and then like kind of every like every few days you would get some like jarring reminder that actually like the kind of um, the sort of window dressing of like iPhones and Ikea wasn't necessarily. It was like quite a thin veneer. And then underneath it was like a deeply kind of uh, fucked up place in a lot of ways. Are are you suggesting that the uh,
2: Thomas Friedman argument that we rehabilitated at the very beginning about the McDonald's and war that Mm. uh, as a matter of fact, the trappings of global capitalism just. The window dressing of it just somehow magically yeah, they create sort of, the freedom
1: from yeah. the mcdonald's outwards yeah, yeah. pacifies yeah. and elevates uh, uh these well the thing is that you know the west is ronald mcdonald but vladimir Putin is the hamburger <laughs> that's right i think mean, lukashenko grimace <laughs>
0: so,
1: would anybody like potato fries <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's right he loves
1: it. Uh, so the the I other one, did you Did you guys see the fucking interview? It was like uh, Putin and Lukashenko having a discussion the other day, and Lukashenko's going like, oh, well, we'll now have a good economic arrangement. Whatever we need, you will sell to us. Whatever you need, we will sell to you. And then just immediately forming in my mind was just the stonks graph, but just with <laughs> Lukashenko's <laughs> face and just the arrow just says,
0: potato. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: him. <laughs> that's that's a perfect economy, right? Is Belarus makes yeah. everything Russia
1: needs, and Russia makes everything Belarus mm-hmm. needs. It's not an autarchy. Yeah. It's a duopoly autarchy. It's it's just it's just so funny because Russia, like Belarus, doesn't make anything anyone needs. <laughs> like
2: sometimes you just need <laughs> yeah. two men,
1: you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: but the, I want to talk about the big the big sanction, what has been referred to quite, um, I would say, unsettlingly as an economic nuclear weapon. Um, which is uh sanctioning the the central bank right forbidding uh trading with the central bank closing uh dollar swap lines right and I, so i want to so just again turn to our 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 wonderful guest and ask can you explain a little bit like why sanctioning the central bank is an economic nuclear weapon
0: i mean i i wouldn't say it's a nuclear weapon but it's certainly a a dramatic escalation from what we've seen before so uh, in in 2014, when when Russia uh, you know first invaded like Crimea uh, and and you know moved military forces into Ukraine, uh, the Russian governments I, I don't want to say started planning, but they took certain economic steps to ensure that they would have uh, a very significant currency reserve. Because when that happened, uh, the ruble went from I think like 50 to 70, uh, which is obviously nowhere near as big as the current devaluation, but was still. Like a pretty sharp move, so uh, the Russian Central bank moved interest rates very, very high. they've been in like the ten to twenty percent uh, range for many years uh, they They balanced their budget, they did pretty dramatic austerity to try and and build up basically this giant pool of currency reserves. Uh, they did all sorts of stuff which seemed kooky at the time, but now probably was a good decision, like they basically repatriated all of their gold from uh, foreign banks abroad to you know physically located inside Russia. Uh, They diversified away from US dollar assets into a lot of, uh, you know, Euro assets. And so uh, by the time this was over, they had, I think, the equivalent of about 650 billion uh, US dollars worth of central bank reserve assets with the idea being that if the currency collapses, we can basically just sell some of these assets for rubles, uh, which will prop up the demand for rubles. Uh, a,
2: A quite literal war chest.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and this was, I don't know if it was the largest, because obviously China has probably something like, I think, two to three trillion. Uh, but this was a very sizable central bank reserve. Like the US, basically, I mean, if you ask a crank, they'll say the US dollar has no reserves. But I think the US has like one or 200 billion in gold in Fort Knox. And that's basically kind of all we have. Like we are not really a a central bank that backs the currency because it's the dollar, like it's the thing that backs everything else. Uh, But so the the expectation was, and sort of the the very strong norm has been that a central bank is allowed to transact in the currency markets, right? Like that's kind of its job. Uh, And so what the U.S. basically did, or I shouldn't say the U.S., uh, what Europe and the U.S. did was they said, you're not allowed to trade with the Russian central bank, which basically means like they didn't take the money Uh, But they basically said, this money is all frozen. You can't do anything with it. You can't move it. Uh, It it is forbidden for anyone to interact with this by, for instance, giving them rubles in exchange for US dollars, Uh, which is again i would say something that was not really anticipated at the beginning of this war uh by anybody including least of all the head of the russian central bank who appears to have been completely blindsided by both the sanctions and the fact that there was a war that was about to happen uh which does seem very funny uh i i, I yeah, think no, it's no, like, no one knew a... this was
2: gonna happen which is so fucking weird no one knew this was gonna happen until it was happening so you you said right earlier, right? This the- This is, I think, useful to go back to this idea that the U.S. uh, central bank doesn't really need to be backed by much. And again, you say, you know, cranks who have a cryptocurrency to sell you will say it's backed by nothing. You should buy my cryptocurrency, which is also backed by nothing, but doesn't pretend to be backed by anything.
1: No, it's backed by a stable coin, which is tethered to the U.S. dollar, which is backed by nothing.
0: (laughs) I mean, that's literally how a lot of these like yield staking pools work in crypto, where it's just like, oh, well, if we pretend to have to own a thing, which pretends to be worth a dollar, then we're backed by assets and therefore you should buy our coins. So... Yeah, it's, they've just reinvented fractional reserve banking with like two extra layers of fraud in it. So it's delicious. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. uh, I, I love it. It's like uh, the the it's the version of a bank that's like um, uh, Bart's malformed uh, twin brother. It's like Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's but one of the things like that backs the U.S. dollar. It doesn't have to. It's not backed by other currencies. It's not necessarily backed by gold. It's backed by the fact that it, after the Second World War it was able to become the global reserve currency on the kind of implicit promise that its interventions would be kept to uh, states in the... Per- its interventions sort of as a you know, global reserve currency would be kept to states in the periphery, uh, especially states in the global south, the developing world, and that its interventions would be, um, say, less Yeah, you're going you're, you're, you're to fuck around with people who don't matter to, to, to capital. And the way that that happens, right, is as we were saying, if you want to buy a barrel of oil, it doesn't matter who you are and who you're buying it from. Two two third countries that both have their own currencies will still t- transact for oil in dollars. Like that's simply the, the 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 reality of
0: it. I mean, I say this somewhat facetiously, but in a certain sense, the asset that's backing the US dollar is like $20 million condos on Central Park in New York City. Because like one of the reasons why the U.S. has sort of persistent demand for U.S. dollars is not because people want the dollars, but because people want the dollars to buy the assets which are in the U.S., which are priced in dollars. And because there's like a gigantic pool of assets in the U.S., if you are you know an oligarch or you know a, a dictator or just like a, a normal quote unquote billionaire, uh, and you live in a country which is not the U.S you are probably going to be very strenuously trying to move money through a bunch of shells in such a way that, you know, that money ends up popping up in the US where, you know, you buy your kid who's going to school in Columbia, uh, a $30 million penthouse apartment, so that worst comes to worst, you can get on a plane, fly to New York, and kind of, you know, live out in exile there. And so I mean, it's not just that. I mean, you've got something like 40% of all of the world's uh, equities are U.S. companies. Something like 25 or 30% of all of the corporate bonds and government bonds are denominated in U.S. dollars by U.S. companies. So, yeah, like the U.S. doesn't have other assets backing it explicitly, but you need to have U.S. dollars to buy these U.S. assets, which are, you know, some of the most desirable assets in the world. That that a lot of rich people really want to have very badly.
1: Well, in the same way, the, the Russian, Ru- the Belarusian ruble demand is propped up by the need for potato.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> right.